Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to a new episode of Field Days, an award-winning podcast about news and hot topics related to the Michigan Department of Corrections. Here are your almost witty hosts, Chris Gouts and Greg Straub. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Field Days Podcast. I'm Greg Straub, joined as always by the department spokesperson, Chris Gouts. Chris, what do you know about the Michigan Parole Board? I, I know enough to be dangerous, but uh, yeah. I think I'm going to be a little bit more dangerous after uh, the next uh, 20, 30 minutes or so, I'm guessing. That's right. That's a, that's a good little uh, lead into our guest today. We do have, we have two parole board members, two Michigan Parole Board members on to talk about really just to kind of, you know, they, they, they work in central office and I'm not sure that everybody really knows a lot about the parole board. You know, they know that they say yes or no to prisoners when they come in front of them, but I don't know if everybody really understands the amount of work and the the tools that they have that that helps them make these decisions. So I'm excited to have on a couple members today uh, to talk about everything parole board, specifically a a new tool that they've been using for a couple of years now um, that's evidence-based and helping them make better decisions on, on, on better parole decisions. So uh, we have on Tim Flanagan, who is well. I, I guess we should say this, Chris. Do you know? Do you know that in in state law, we, there's a makeup of the parole board that we have to follow? Do you know that? I, I, I am aware of that. Yes, I am. Go go ahead and tell me more. Yeah, <laughs> that there's a makeup. Okay. Uh, certain individuals with certain backgrounds, some MDOC, some non-MDOC. That's right. the The law says that we can only have so many MDOC employees, and we have to have so many non-MDOC employees. So we have actually one of each on today. So uh, Tim Flanagan is uh, one of our MDOC staff that is a Pro Board member, and we have on uh, Adrienne Van Langebeld, who is a non-MDOC person who came from um, Eaton County. And uh, welcome to Field Days, you guys. I appreciate you guys coming on. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good morning. Thank you. Yeah, so why don't you guys first tell us kind of uh, your histories here, what, what your background, what led you to the Pro Board? Okay, I'll start. So I was a prosecutor, actually I started as a prosecutor in Macosta County, so Big Rapids, in 2009. And then in 2010, I got hired by Eaton County uh, Prosecutor's Office, and I was there until December 2020 when I was appointed to the parole board. Well, I, I think it's important that your background, you know, as a prosecutor, you know, I, I don't know if everybody realizes the non-DOC people, where they, what, you know, what they do before they come to the parole board. Um, so I think it's important, you know, to help people understand some of the backgrounds of uh, of the non-DOC folks. So I appreciate that. And Tim, we, everybody knows Tim Flanagan. I was a departmental employee when I was appointed to the parole board, but I also come from, from outside of, of the department. I, w- I came to the MDOC in at the end of 2010. And, and I my connection to, to the MDOC was that I, I worked as a policy specialist in the Office of Legal Counsel for Governor Granholm, and one of the I, I worked there at a time when there was a a lot of focus on on clemency, commutations, and pardons. It was a large focus of of what that administration was was doing. And one of my principal roles was was to manage that process from that end. And and I was the liaison to the parole board at, at that time. So I, I just kind of developed an affinity for for, for the. The board and became a student of paroling authorities, and I just really wanted to stay in that discipline. So I came to the department uh, towards the end of that administration, and and I've been with the department 12 years now. I've worked in various capacities for the parole board, 
And I spent a few years in, in offender success and I was appointed to the board in January of 2019. Great. So let's let's get into this discussion. And my first, I guess the first question is just, I guess very broad. It's, you know, what 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 do you guys think that you know, what do you, what the perception of the parole board is? You guys make parole decisions, obviously. But what are what are some of the things or the misconceptions you think that people need to understand about the parole board and, and what, what the work is on a daily basis? I think that they, I, I would, I know my coming to the parole board I, to give you what I think the outside thinks, because mine was a total happy accident because I got a letter from Mike Egan, who I worked with in the county prosecutor's office, that a case that I had worked so hard on, child abuse case, she was getting a parole and it was bad. And I was so mad. And I called Mike and I was like, what are you doing? How could you let her out? And Mike's like, why don't you come up here and see what we do and how we actually do this? I'm like, okay. So I did. I took a field trip to the parole board and I actually watched him and I watched Mike. And I was like, oh, you guys really dig into this. And he's like, yeah. So from my perspective on the outside, I think oh, they're just letting people out to let them out because they don't want to have prisoners. And they, you know, they just check boxes and say, OK, well, they've been good, so we'll let them out. But that's not that's not accurate at all. And I think that's that that is the perception of the parole board. It's this invisible bureaucracy that 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 functions behind the scenes and no one no one knows what, what what they're doing and if you're if you're in the law enforcement community then they're they're an entity the board's an entity that's just letting everyone out of prison if you're if you're in the the victim advocate community it's, it's kind of the same thing if you're if you're in the other the prisoner advocacy community then we're not letting enough people out i i, I think that that the perception of of the of the board uh, across the state and even nationally is 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 not very well known because we we kind of operate behind the scenes. Well, that's helpful. And, and let's be very clear. Like you know, when when people when, when prisoners come before you for their interview, um, they have been sentenced to a, a a date, right? A minimum and a maximum date. That's that's how Michigan works. So let's just say you're sentenced for a crime and it's five to twenty years. They cannot come see you before that five year term, right? They, they have to serve at least their minimum term, which is a five years, let's just say. Um, right. So so we're not letting people out early. We're not <laughs> releasing people. They have to have served what the judge gave them, uh, their minimum term, and then they come see you, and then they can make a decision on yes or no. So I know sometimes there's a perception too that people get early release and people are out early. They haven't served their sentence, and that's not true, correct? Correct. We have truth in sentencing still in Michigan. Right. So, with, with the select uh, select few prisoners that are still subject to, to the right. old good time rules. Right. Yeah, yes. You have to Correct. serve your entire minimum sentence uh, before you before we have jurisdiction to make any type of decision on the case. So let's let's talk more about this. So you guys have just said what kind of the perception is um, from somebody who's outside the DOC, somebody who's inside the DOC. Now let's talk about reality, right? What what is it what what is uh, what does it look like? Like what is what goes into a decision for somebody to parole or not to parole? Well, there's a tremendous uh, amount of of work that goes into making the determination whether or not someone is suitable for release. And there, we do a lot of we we conduct uh, a lot of parole 
consideration interviews throughout the year. I, I, I think we're on track, to, I, I saw, to, to do about 9,500 of, of those this year. But there's also a lot of work that goes into preparing for those, to, to, to finding what, what you need to talk to, to, to this person uh, about and, and filling in the gaps and, and what's in, in important information to, to, to get from them. So um, there, there's a lot of a lot of background work that, that gets done even before we interview these guys. I could say too, um, I totally agree with Tim. You know, we're reading files. Um, you know, obviously we're reading what they did and what brought them to prison, but we're also looking at their criminal history. We're reading the PSIs. We're reading um, their reports from any programming that they've completed. We're looking, I do, I work, look at, do they have a work assignment? How are they spending their time in there? Are they in Volk Village? And then we don't have all the information right away about their release plan. But the, but I think when we do our prep, that then gets us ready to focus on, okay, what questions are we going to ask, or at least plan to ask, or what areas are we planning on looking at during our parole interview? Right. And that leads perfectly into the topic of our discussion today, which is a new tool, you know, much like every other area of the MDOC, the pro board is no different. I mean, you guys are looking at things to get better too, right? If you keep doing the same thing over and over again, it never change. I, I don't see us getting better, right? So much like every other area, FOA, CFA, the pro board seeks out and tries to find um, new tools, new evidence-based tools um, to make better decisions and to make the pro board um, better. So that's what we're talking about. So you did, you did say, that uh you know you, you look at you look at a lot of things and, and you look at their file you're looking at their program you're looking at you know, their adjustments you know how they've um how they what they've done to occupy their time is it pro-social is it anti-social but i know you know across not just the michigan but across the countries across the country pro boards focus on things that aren't really evidence-based when they're when they're looking at these decisions right and and things they sh really shouldn't be focusing on the things that aren't going to change and I, in, in Michigan, you know, I, I'm sure at some point was no different than every other pro board in the country. And that's why we reached out to NIC to, to look at using a new tool. And that's what I want to talk about this tool. It's called the Structured Decision-Making Framework Tool, right? SDMF. So let's talk about that. Well, first of all, what is it? Talk about what it is and why it's important. So I'll just give a quick background of, of, of why it was, was developed to, to assist uh, parole boards. And the tool itself was developed by Dr. Ralph Saren, who is a, a, a criminal psychologist and, and professor at Carleton University. And, and he did a tremendous amount of validation in Canada on this over more than a decade. And, and the reasons that he developed it are, are, and you started to talk about it already, Greg, some of the criticisms that parole boards get, and this isn't just the Michigan Parole Board, this is paroling authorities nationally, are that they do focus in on the, on things that don't matter. Like you said, the 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 what the person did. They, they, the, the, the criticism is that parole boards sit and act as second round judges, and, and that's not that's not their role. And, and sometimes parole boards focus on things that they shouldn't, and, and rather than the empirically based risk factors that, that are shown to impact outcomes. Uh, there's also criticism that, that, that parole boards across their membership are inconsistent and arbitrary in, in, in making their decisions. And another thing, and this is, this is less a criticism more than a reality of the paroling world, is, is that 
sometimes in a world where you're not putting everyone in prison for life sentences, uh, sometimes you're going to release some someone and the outcome isn't going to be what, what what you expected it to be. And there better be a good reason. You better be able to, to, to justify the reason you made that decision. So the structured decision making framework was developed by Dr. Saren to kind of provide a roadmap to parole boards to focus on the things that are empirically shown uh, that are evidence-based, that, that are shown to, to be important to community success, as well as taking into consideration what the what, what each jurisdiction is statutorily required to do and factors that, that such as community, how community feels uh, about a case or, or, or whether there's, there's victim input. It, it kind of combines what we call risk-based factors and domains with policy-related domains. And I think Tim hit the nail on the head there. I think even um, good or bad, I think we have this perception, right, that parole board members are second round judges when that's completely false. But it but it may have been that way. And I believe that it was for a long time in, in maybe this state or maybe other states. And that's where the structured decision making framework comes in. Yeah, facts don't change. The facts of the case do not change. But isn't rehabilitation about changing hearts and minds and making people better? And so that's where we're looking at various factors that the structured decision-making framework gives us to determine if there's been change. And we're really looking and digging in the file and digging into the prisoner of, has that change come about? What does that change look like? And how are they going to implement it in the future? Well, you said something important there, and I think this is very, very important in, in what the what the structured decision-making framework tool provides you, because it, it is evidence-based. You, you said facts don't change, right? Because you're right, facts do not change, but you know what does change? People change, and people can change and learn new skills and change behaviors to to be more successful, I guess. And Absolutely. you're right, I think I, I think people were basing, you know, some of their decisions on the facts that weren't changing. So, so somebody would come in front of a pro board member and you know, their facts aren't going to change. What, what they did isn't going to change. And if they rely heavily on that, then we're, then we're going to, you know, we're, we're, we're already behind the eight ball there because that's not going to change. You can't change that fact. But people can change. They could, you know, learn new skills in prison and program do through programming, through, um, you know, jobs, through other avenues where they can learn skills and change. So I, I, re I really wanted to point that out because I think that's a major focus of this um, tool is to focus on the things that we should be focusing on where people can change. And to and to ensure that it's consistent across membership. Yeah. Because we all uh, parole boards are 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 made up of human beings who all have their own implicit bias and 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 backgrounds and education and if you don't have something focusing you in consistently all on the same things that then you are subject to that drift. You are subject to your to your own biases. Having a tool to make sure that everyone's looking at, at things, not only things that matter, but the same things is important. Sure. So as we look more into this and in, in this structured decision making or SDMF, because, you know, what this department doesn't need is, you know, obviously more acronyms. <laughs> so I'm glad that we're, that we're adding another one uh, to our lexicon. But um, it's not, I don't know how if you characterize this as like a, a, a big change. Is this like a, a huge shift in the way the pro board works? And, and if so, it sounds like that's not something that you just do overnight. I mean, how long has this process been in place or how long have we been thinking about moving in this direction? 
Well, I'll talk, I'll talk a little. It, it, it's been a long time. It, it, it's, it wasn't something that, that we just read about and decided to implement in Michigan. The process started in October 2019. I actually learned about this at, at a national uh, parole, new parole board member orientation. And I brought it back and I, I discussed it with Deputy Director Marlin and then Pro Board Chair uh, Mike Egan at, 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 at the time. And we had to apply to the, the National Institute of Corrections to, to be included in, in this, to, to ask them for the, the, a technical assistance grant to help us with this. It, we, we, we didn't, we couldn't just say we want to do this. They, we had to apply, and they had they they had to look at the look at the state, and make sure that that we were conducting ourselves. Uh, our we had evidence based practices and policies, and accept us, and, and and they did, and and they approved us for the technical assistance, and that started around in in March of 2020, right before COVID, and we were actually in Connecticut doing a site visit with their board of, of pardons and paroles kind of watching how they use the the tool when the world started to to shut down and it caused a little bit of a delay in in the process but the director ultimately uh approved us to to move forward on it and so the national institute of, and that still wasn't even though they, they accepted us as, as a as a site for the technical assistance that still wasn't it they had to come in and do a what they call a readiness assessment and they sat down and talked with our leadership they sat down and talked with every single board member they sat down and talked with our pre-screening staff um, they reviewed our our processes they 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 had to make a determination that not only do, do we have all the information we need but that our culture was open to the change that, that that the board members and the leadership in the department was open to innovation and change and then we went through a whole implementation plan which was extremely painful where they came in they 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 sent a technical assistance team they they learned about our statutes they learned about our policies they learned about our processes and procedures and how we conduct interviews how we make our decisions every aspect of our process and they worked with us to develop an implementation plan for for this and and after that they came in and they trained every every board member and all our pre-screening staff on the technical aspects of of how to to code as they as they say uh this this framework and then they gave us through a, a, a coaching team through the center for effective public policy and kind of coached us into implementation and now the 10 states that are actually full on implement, implementing this have developed what, what's what's called a community of practice where we're sharing information. We just had a conference in, in New York where we all, all these states met together and we discussed how we can move this forward and, and shared information. So it, it was a very, it's, it, it's been three years at this point and it was a, a very detailed process that we were guided by the National Institute of Corrections, the Center for Effective Public Policy, and the Association of Paroling Authorities International. So for, for, for us and for those 10 states, are we incorporating this now? Is it starting soon? And, and what, 
what if any difference would a prisoner sitting before one of you, would they notice anything different in the way that you ask questions or is this more behind the scenes stuff that the framework that you're looking at it and the lens through? So when I started shortly thereafter is when we really started implementing it. So I know from watching when I first started in December of 2020, when I started watching interviews, the interviews have changed a bit um, because we're focusing not so much on the crime, right? Or, you know, or what your criminal history was as in like specific facts and specific details about the crime. And we're more looking at well, what was the motivation behind the crime? What was your behavior like? Things like that. Yeah, and, and I think that, that that's exactly it. A, a prisoner should notice a, a difference in in the way that interviews are are conducted because it, it should focus you in, as you discussed earlier, on the things that are important, like offender change, like what this person's plans are upon release. Is, is, does this person have those stability factors that that, that are going to help them? Uh, do things differently in, in place? Have they started to plan for that? So if you would have went to a parole board interview, in, really in any state in the last five years, you're you're going to probably see a, an inordinate amount of focus on the crime and in the details of that crime. And and now you you would see more of a focus on on, on those dynamic factors, those things that that that, that can change over the years. So in, in the, in the, one of the things that the structured decision-making framework speaks to is the over-reliance on, on, on the interview. And because, you, you know, you're, you get a brief amount of time to talk to someone and not everyone presents in the same way. And, and you know, we've all had job interviews where, where, where maybe we didn't perform very well for, for, for whatever reason that day. So th this, this framework kind of focuses you in on uh, on things outside of, of that person's presentation. And it also helps to, to know what to focus on during the, the brief time that you talk to the person, the, the, the things that you can fill in the gap with, the things that you need to talk to that person about versus the I, things we already know. And I think Tim just raised an interesting point too. It's It's not so much focused on your perception of the prisoner. You're really listening to what they're saying, obviously, but if somebody's nervous, right? Like, what does lying look like? I, I remember being, a, you know, an attorney, a prosecutor, and asking the jury, what does lying look like? And they go, oh, they won't look you in the eye, or, you know, they're fiddling, or, but that could also be nerves. And so, you, you know, we have this idea maybe in our head of what lying looks like, but there's other things it could be, too. And so, I definitely agree with Tim. It takes, and plus, you know, prisoners aren't always the best people to get information from. So it takes necessarily maybe an emphasis away from the interview and really looking at, you know, their actions and and their behavioral aspects as opposed to what the prisoner is just telling you or what they think that you want to hear in the interview. Like, I take full responsibility. What does that mean? <laughs> sure. So uh, as we've said uh, uh, early, earlier and just a little bit ago, you know, clearly the parole board and the department as a whole have advocates on both sides who feel very strongly and very differently. <laughs> so 
you know, that there's one side who thinks that the parole board has just open doors and just lets everyone out. And that's why the prison population is so declining. Obviously, you know, not the case. Um, then there's others who think that, you know, you're not letting anyone out or, or not enough out. So when both sides hear about this new framework that the board is going to use, what should their takeaway be? Is this going to mean more paroles, fewer paroles, making just making better decisions or something totally different? Like what what should they take away from this that, that when they hear that the board's doing something different? Well, for, for me, the 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 takeaway. So one of the one of the challenges for me as a as a pro board member when I was a new member was just the gravity of these decisions. These are such high stakes de decisions. Who am I to, to, to make this decision? And, and not just not having a framework that, that that's that's grounded in in evidence-based practices to help me, to focus me on on how to make the best decision was challenging. And that's why I was so I was so drawn to this when when I when I learned about it. So if I'm if I'm somebody in in, in the public, um, and Chris, you 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 meant you you hit it on the head. There's there's always someone that's going to be upset at the de decisions we make. There's there's always going to be an upset party. Uh, out there, but what we the best thing that we can do as a department, as as a parole board, is use an evidence based process that's fair, that's consistent, and we can do we can point to that. We have a structured decision making framework. We have a structured decision making framework that is grounded in uh, evidence based practices. We have a, 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 a structured decision making framework that's grounded in evidence based practices that is applied consistently by every member that makes a decision. So I, I think that that's the big takeaway that that we can tell anyone out there who is upset at something we do. And I and along with that, too, I think it's it is the hope, right, that we make better decisions and more consistent decisions. And ultimately we're putting people back in the community that are safe and that are gonna you know, do well as citizens out in our community, because that's the goal. The goal is to rehabilitate and have, have a safer community. And for me, when I look at this, as a prosecutor, you know, you have to have specific facts and evidence to meet elements of a crime. Now I look at that as I have to have specific facts and evidence to parole someone or not to parole someone, either way. So it's meeting that evidence-based that I think is so important when making yeah. big decisions. And if I'm if I'm a member of the public, then I, I being a board member is a significant public trust. And if I'm a member of the community, I wanna I wanna know that 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 person is is not is not just making decisions based on what their gut tells them after talking to someone for 20, 30 minutes, that, that, they, that the, the, they're using a guide that is grounded in best practices. So I don't know if, um, if this came up in your, in your conference or your training, or if the individual who created this sort of had a vision for what the end goal is, but now that you're starting this and you're implementing it, do you have any sense of like what the parole board looks like a year out, two years, five years? Like, is there a is there something at the end of this that we're going to look back on and say we started here and now we're here because we've done this? 
Well, I have a lot of, of, of hopes for, for where we, we go with, with this. And as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're just entering into uh, this community of practice. So now the NIC didn't, didn't spend all this time and money with, with these states just to, so we could come on a podcast and, 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 and tout uh, the, this, this cool thing we're, we're doing. They want outcome data. They want to they know that that states are, are implementing this with with consistency. And so we are now in this professional community with these other states that are doing this. We are going to start gathering data on this. We're, we're already meeting with other states uh, uh, to learn their best practices. We've, we've had several meetings with the state of Connecticut who, who has a very robust uh, research entity within their parole board. Um, there are a number of, of internal reforms that, that, that I would like to, to see us make. Um, ultimately, some of what some of the other states did that I would like us to, to, to do is to use this to, to drive important reforms and important change within our processes. And I think the ultimate, I mean, the ultimate goal is safer communities, lower recidivism rate. That's the goal, right? But it's going to take some data and some time to really know. But I think at some point we'll be looking back and we'll say we weren't just making arbitrary decisions based on our gut. We had evidence. And this is why we did what we did. We're showing our work why we did or did not let this person out on parole. Yeah, this is I mean, this is a. Uh... This is this is a big shift, I think, not only for us, but I think just in the in the work that <laughs> parole boards across the country do. And that, there's there's two things that that's very clear um, after this discussion with with the two of you is one, Michigan, <laughs> again, is leading the way in 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 modernizing our processes and making things fair, consistent across the board. And I think that's that's what you have to do always, you know, not only to get better. We're not dealing with widgets or robots. We're dealing with human beings who, you know, th these are life altering decisions that you guys are making, not only for them, but for the public in general. So, uh, you know, these these processes that are, you know, that, that provide all these things to you, I think is great. And, and to have Michigan doing this and, and Tim, I, I mean, I was part of this from the beginning with you and I know you this was this was your this was your thing that you brought to us. So um, this is important and I think it's it's great that we're using it. And number two is. The amount of work that you guys do and what goes into your work, I think is um, <laughs> a lot of the times not known or understated, right? I think people think, oh yeah, that'd be fun to be a pro board member. They just say yes or no and they get to interview people. But the amount of work that goes into this that you guys have talked about and the work that you put into this to make these decisions, it's it's amazing and it's a lot. And you guys are doing an amazing, awesome job for a, a lot of people across the state of Michigan. So uh, thank you very much for not only coming on field days and talking about the structured decision-making framework tool, but for the work that you do every day, because it's very, very important and it matters more than I think a lot of people realize. So um, thank you both for coming on. I appreciate it. That's really awesome. Thanks, Greg. And, yeah. and it's a pleasure to be a, a parole board member. It is a lot of work, but I, I never in a million years thought I would have this job, but I love it and I'm glad I'm here. Uh, and likewise, thanks for having us on. And and as I mentioned earlier, it, it, it's a it, it's a pleasure to to be a, 
a parole board member. It's significant public trust that we all take very seriously and put our hearts into every day. Well, Chris, I, I hope you learned a little bit more about the parole board than you knew going into this podcast, because I thought that was very you know informational. I, I think you can see the work that parole board members do and you know just just the shift from moving away from you know maybe how it, how a, a prisoner interviews that day they could be having a bad day and you know basing our decisions off of that kind of stuff and, and things that are static and don't matter uh, versus being very consistent right in this framework and using things that evidence says we should be targeting when making parole decisions so i hope you learned a little more um, about the parole board today chris no i certainly did and and i knew that you know that they take their jobs very seriously and all of this new this new framework that we're going to use is not to say that every decision in the past was not uh, done with the same amount of care and concern uh, right. but it's just adding this additional layer of um, thinking about how to structure your decision as you're looking at all these different factors and what and what to weigh more than, than another so i think it's just going to add one more level of professionalism to the job that they already do which is really great no, you're right. You're right. And, and, I, and I really appreciate them coming out and talking about that. We, you know, I, I'm, I'm surprised that we've done, been doing this stuff for how many years, Chris, and we've never had parole board members on. That's that's, that's shocking. So I'm, I'm glad we finally, you know, had some members on and, and talked about the process and talked about what goes into their process so that uh, not only our staff, but I think, you know, advocates and others outside the DOC can can hear that stuff. Absolutely. No, it's important to be open and transparent. And I think this is uh, one way to do that. And I hope that we'll have uh, folks on again to talk about, you know, other things that are going on with the board in the future. That is true. And, you know, Chris, we have uh, our, I love that we, we keep getting shout outs. You know, I, it's in, remember we used to do this. We used to have people like record their voice in like their iPhone and then send that video or send that audio to us. We just play it on the podcast. That was fun. We should, we should talk more about that because yeah, we, we're, I, getting, I, we're getting a lot of shout outs and I think that's awesome, but it's almost, it's almost better when the person who sends the email, and I know not everybody wants to have their voice on the podcast, trust me, I don't either, but it's fun to have their voice on the podcast talking about the person they're talking about, right? So I think we should focus on that a little more too. Yeah, I too would not like to have your voice on the podcast. So I also <laughs> would encourage people to send in their own voice so that we can just play it and not have to listen to you. So I, I full wholeheartedly endorse that. Oh, it's the one Chris. election era uh, endorsement that I will make uh, this cycle. Well, unfortunately for you on this podcast, this person did not send their audio recording in. So I'm going to have to read this, but I want to make sure that I give this shout out to an FOA employee. And this shout out comes from operations administrator, Kristen Gannon from the Metro Territory. She gives a shout out to uh, their embedded agent over there in the Metro Territory, um, Teresa Krizak. And Agent Krizak did an amazing thing here. She she worked with her law enforcement partners, main, you know, namely the, uh, the ATF. And um, she had a tip from uh, someone that one of one of our uh, individuals under community supervision, um, you know, may, was spiraling out of control and may have um, had some drugs and guns in their house. So, what the embedded agent did was, you know, got her law enforcement partners and they went over and did a home call and checked on the situation, which is awesome. And when they were there, they, they got some some leads that many things may be in a storage unit over in the metro territory. So they they traveled over to this uh, storage unit where, ready for this, Chris? They found a host of things. And what those things were, <laughs> were 42 firearms, 94 containers of various calibers of assorted ammunition and firearms components. And that is awesome. Uh, that is a lot of guns and ammunition that were taken off the street 
obviously before, hopefully before they were used by just getting a tip from somebody and the follow-up of agent Krizak is awesome to get her law enforcement partners to go do this work take the leads that they were given and find all of these guns is cool so huge huge shout out to agent Teresa Krizak in the metro territory uh for the work that she did on this case and thanks to uh Kristen Gannon for sending this into us well, that's great. Yeah, I, I love to hear those kind of stories and I love uh, when people send those in. So please continue to do that. And like Greg said, if you want to hear your own voice and do it, in, do it in your own words, uh, feel free to send those in. So send those in by recording on your iPhone. Share that to uh, via email to askmdoc at michigan.gov, correct? Is that how we're doing that? That's right. All right. Well, that's all I have. I know this was a very informational, informative um, podcast for you, Chris, and, uh, and also for me, but uh, hopefully everybody got... Um, you know, uh, shed some light on what the pro board does and the, and the amount of work that they do and the hard work that they do. So anything else, Chris? That's it for me. All right. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in and stay tuned next week for a new episode of Field Days Podcast. All right. As always, thank you for listening. We'd love it if you would help us spread the word about the podcast. You can do that by subscribing to the show on iTunes and leave us a review. You can always follow the department on Facebook at MI Corrections and on Twitter at Michigan DOC, as well as the FOA account at MDOC FOA and the CFA account at MDOC CFA. And you can send any questions you have to the show using the hashtag AskFieldDays. <laughs>